Last week, we preached the first 10 verses of Malachi 2. This week, we will look at verses 11 through 16. The title of the message, The Holiness of God. We're going to consider the holiness of God this morning as God considers it through the prophet Malachi. Throughout this series, we spent a great deal of time learning principles from the Word of God regarding proper worship. Now, by their very nature, these principles specifically touch our religious practices as well as our associations. We must carefully guard our methods of worship, our motivations in worship, and even our associations in worship. That is what we have been learning as we've learned that God does not want us to bring our second best. God does not want us to have improper motivations, false motivations, as we come before Him in our worship. But the holiness of God as we understand it, teaches us lessons regarding our actions and our interactions that we might consider to be, as it were, outside the realm of formal worship as well. Certainly, we come to this body and we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. We go home and we have our time together as a family where we read the Word of God, where we sing, where we pray, where we memorize. Uh, we have our time in the morning of, of personal prayer, of, of scripture memory, all of these things that we do and we focus ourselves on worship to God, yet uh, though there aren't things that are outside of Christianity and a Christian focus, yet there are things in our daily actions that are not performed with the direct intent of focused worship. As a matter of fact, I would wager that the majority of things that we do in this life are not focused with the direct intent on Focus worship. Now, I understand that as we do the things we do throughout the week, as we mow the lawn, as we go to work, as we do our homework, all of those things, we can do them heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. We can practice 1 Corinthians 10.31. We can uh, take all of these aspects of doing things for God's glory and translate them into those things that we do that aren't necessarily religious in focus and yet When I mow the grass, my direct intent is to get the grass shorter. And so those are the kind of things I'm talking about. My direct intent is not that somebody would see me mowing the grass and somehow see that that God is being glorified, if you understand what I'm saying here. I'm mowing the grass to shorten the grass. And so there are many things in our lives that we would call perhaps not inherently religious And yet through them, God is still supposed to, his holiness is yet supposed to be very much a part of those activities. And today we're going to explore the degree to which we should allow our interactions and our actions within these non-religious settings to go. And how God's holiness sets guidelines and principles concerning those earthly relationships, those earthly interactions that we would have on this earth. And so as your notes reflect, we're going to see two lessons this morning. Two lessons regarding a believer's earthly relationships from God's controversy with Judah in Malachi 2, 11 through 16. First lesson we're going to learn this morning is found in verses 11 through 13, and it is this. Your holy God demands separated people. Your holy God demands a separated people. People. Look with me at verses 11 through 13. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned 
the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacle of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Your holy God demands a separated people. Now, before we begin, it's important for us to understand and to establish the biblical definition of holiness. The biblical definition of holiness. When we think of holiness, when we speak of God being a holy God, as we have just sung about His holy, holy, holy nature twice now in these past two hymns that we've sung, we're stating two distinct but interrelated principles about God. As we speak of God being holy, we speak first of all that God is separate, separated, separate or set apart. He is separated from that which is not Him. God is different from anything or anyone else. There is no one, nor is there anything like God. God is holy. God is separated. God is set apart from everything else. But we also, when we think of God being holy as an extension of his separatedness, as an extension of him being set apart, he is as well sinless. Now, this element of God's holiness is by extension more than it is by definition. It is not that God is defined as holiness as much as God is holiness. It is not that God is defined as being sinless as much as it is God defines what sinless means. The fact that God is sinless makes him God, and the fact that God does it defines it as being sinless. Does that make sense? Sin, by definition, is anything we say, do, or think that offends the character, the nature, or the will, by extension, the word of God. And so sin is defined as that which is not God. God as is that which is not sin. So if it's sin, it's not God. If it's God, it's not sin. God is sinless. This is an extension of his holiness. This is an extension of his perfection. This is an extension of his separatedness. Now, Men aren't sinless. No man is sinless. So when a man or when a people are called to be holy, the calling is not that of, be, of sinless perfection, although that's the ideal. The calling is to that first reality of being separated or set apart. When God calls us to be a holy people, when God called Israel to be a holy people, he was calling them to be set apart. He called Israel not to be sinlessly perfect, but to be a people who consistently separated themselves from that which was not pleasing to God. Likewise, the church is called to be a holy people. 1 Peter 1.16 Not that we must be sinlessly perfect, but that our actions and interactions are expected to be consistently separated from that which is not pleasing to God. Holiness, separate, set apart. God is holy. By extension, God is sinless. God has called his people to be separate, set apart, holy. With the intent of, we look forward to the one day when we will have sinless perfection if we're born again. With the intent of not sinning, yet we know that every man has a sin nature. Yet we are called to be separated and set apart. 
Verse 11 begins a new controversy. If you recall the outline of the book of Malachi, it begins a new controversy in verse 11. And that controversy begins with, is, with um, God stating that Judah has dealt treacherously. Judah has dealt treacherously. Notice verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel. Now, right on the heels of this condemnation of the priests, which we saw in verses 1 through 10 of Malachi 2, for their treachery among the people through their partiality in the law, through their improper sacrifices, God expands this condemnation to include all of Judah. He tells them that they have dealt treacherously. That word literally in the Hebrew meaning to deal unfaithfully. God says, you have dealt unfaithfully with me. This word is often used in other parts of the scripture to describe those who would go back on a promise, who would invalidate a vow, those who were unfaithful to a commitment, those who said they would do something and then backed out at the last minute. That's what God is saying Judah has done. They have committed to something and now they are dealing unfaithfully, treacherously with that commitment. God then continues to say that an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. This word abomination in the Hebrew is literally the word abhorrence. Abomination is a good strong word, a good translation of it. It was the word used to describe the Israelites in Genesis 43:32 in the eyes of the Egyptians. Do you recall that when Israel came into Egypt after they had been enslaved, as a matter of fact even before they had been enslaved in Egypt, the scripture said that that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. They abhorred them. They looked down on them. They wouldn't even be seen in the same room as someone who was a shepherd. That's the word here. An abomination being committed in Israel. It's used by God in Leviticus 18.22 to describe the acts of sodomy, the acts of adultery, and the acts of idolatry. He called all of those acts abominations in his eyes. It's the same word here as God describes an abomination having been, having been committed in Israel. It's an extremely severe word, one of reprehension, one of disgust in the eyes of God. Before we continue, though, I want us to notice as well the context in which God expresses his disgust. Notice he says at first, Judah hath dealt treacherously. And then he says there is an abomination committed in Israel. Whereas God references the people of Judah as the ones who have dealt treacherously, he then reminds them that the treachery is in relation to the covenant of God. By stating that specifically Israel and Jerusalem, now we know that Israel is not really a part of, the northern tribes of Israel are not a part of this picture. The northern tribes of Israel were taken into captivity hundreds of years earlier by the Assyrians, and they were now back in the land under the name of the Samaritans. We remember that from our Nehemiah series that I preached in Sunday night services not too long ago. And so they were, they were back in the land as the Samaritans. They were back in the land with Sanballat and Tobiah and all of them. So when, G, when God here is saying that Judah has committed the treachery, but that the abomination is found in Israel and in Jerusalem, he is specifically mentioning that the abomination is in relation to the covenant. We remember that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel was the name given to God, given to Jacob by God when Jacob was ushered into all of those covenantal promises. 
Israel was, we could call it, Jacob's covenant name. It was the name that referenced his specific relationship to God in this covenant. This covenant that would then become a covenant given to all of the nation of Israel. Jerusalem was the nation wherein God had promised David in 2 Samuel that he would establish the, that covenant. That that covenant would be established in Jerusalem. That he would make his name there. So when God says Judah has dealt treacherously, he's talking about the nation. But then when the abomination is committed in Israel and Jerusalem, God is saying, you have been abhorrent to the covenant that I've made with you. You have made an agreement with me. You have dealt unfaithfully with that agreement. And that agreement was why I changed Jacob's name to Israel. That agreement was why I set up Jerusalem as the capital. That was all in faithfulness to the covenant that I made that you are dealing treacherously with now. This subtle shift highlights the fact that his anger with them is on the level of this covenant that they have made. And so we see the topic of this treachery and the reason of this disgust at the end of the verse. Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Specifically, God's own covenant people had profaned his holiness by intermarrying women of the land who served false gods. Now, let's understand this here. The word that God calls abomination, the very word he used to speak of sodomy, idolatry, and adultery in the land is the word that he is using to describe profaning his holiness through intermingling with the people of the land. It is just as awful in his sight that these people would intermarry with, fault, with, with women that served false gods as it would be that they committed any other of those lewd acts. Now as we connect the pieces to history, we, we remember from the beginning of the series that we're probably around the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah may have been in Babylon at the time or it might have been just past his tenure as governor. This would have been right before the intertestamental period. Israel is under the thumb of Persia at this time. They are under Persian rule. Nehemiah may have been in Babylon and we recall, if that is the case, that when Nehemiah came back from Babylon, one of the ways in which he greatly chastised the people was that they had intermarried while he was gone. If you remember that from Nehemiah, that might very well be this time here. Malachi is telling them that God abhors these things that they are doing in this interim period where Nehemiah was gone and they have begun to divorce their wives and marry the women of the land. This practice was offensive to God specifically because God's people were called to be absolutely separate from any form of idol worship or from any pagan practice associated with false religions. Israel was God's peculiar possession, he called them. They were a called out people, above all the people of the earth, with a very special relationship to God. God enumerated that in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 14. He furthermore specifically commanded in those verses that the people would not intermarry with the Canaanites and by extension intermarry with any people that conflicted with Israel's specific purpose and their specific calling. Their purpose was to be rightly related to God so that they could then teach others, show others how to be rightly related to God. They were not supposed to marry anyone that was not in line with that purpose because that was their purpose. 
So the principle is this, as we see God chasten, or excuse me, chastise these people. God is a holy God. He's separated from all sin. He is separated from all evil. He is separated and above all other gods. God has chosen Israel to be a people holy, therefore separated unto him. They are his holy people. They are his separated people. They are to be consistently and completely yielded to the purpose that God has given them, which was to show his glory and praises to the rest of the world. Therefore, God prohibited anything in the lives of his people that would distract them or divert them from their chosen purpose of manifesting God's glory. God chose them. They had a purpose. And God told them specifically, do not do anything. Get yourself into any relationship or situation that will minimize or confuse the purpose that I have for you. Now there's little doubt that marrying a woman devoted to a false god created a scenario whereby if she did not completely turn her husband's heart away from God, she would at least inhibit his ability to fully live out God's purpose for him. That just makes sense, does it not? She's not devoted to God. She's not devoted to God's praises and worships. Therefore, that relationship has now been minimized in its effectiveness to do what it has been called to do, which was to give God maximum praise and maximum glory. And so God strictly forbade intermarrying between his covenant people and those of the lands that were devoted to false gods. As God continues his contention... Notice as well that he does not divide. He does not draw a dividing line of privilege whereby a man by virtue of his standing or his position was allowed to disregard his expectation. It is a sad revelation regarding our society that men with enough popularity or money or connections are able seemingly to operate above the law. We've seen this time and time again whereby men with money or fame or privilege have special privileges when it comes to them doing illegal things and somehow they're able to skirt by or charges get dropped or whatever the case may be in areas where they have done something illegal or done something wrong. Such actions reveal that the people of this country uphold money or uphold fame or power as idols and so they're willing to even disregard the laws of the land in order that they might uphold the, these famous or rich people or uphold the money that seems to make this country go. It is equally unfortunate that churches are not immune from such temptations and situations. Men who have a reputation as men of spiritual influence, be it pastors or bishops or priests or whatever the case may be, are allowed to do abhorrent things, things that violate the law, things that violate their own code of conduct, things that violate the very words that they preach by virtue of their position and by virtue of their supposed authority. Church history, both ancient and modern, are filled with religious leaders who have taken advantage of their position to do that which is abhorrent in the eyes of God. This is the circumstance we see here in Malachi. And we also see this circumstance reflected back in Nehemiah, if you recall. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, when Nehemiah returned from Babylon, he found the people had intermarried and he found all of these things. But do you recall he found an outspoken enemy of Israel 
a man named Tobiah physically living in one of the rooms of the temple. Do you remember that? Tobiah actually was living in a room that should have been dedicated to the storehouse for the people to bring their tithes and their offerings so that the Levites could minister among the things of the temple and not have to flee to the fields to feed their families. Tobiah was living in that room within the very temple itself. Now, why was he able to do this? As we put the pieces together from Nehemiah, we remember that Nehemiah uh, relates that Tobiah was related to the nation of Israel by marriage. He was married to an Israelite woman. And beyond that, he was an ally of the high priest, Eliashib. And so because Tobiah had connections and because he knew people with power, he actually found himself living in the temple of God, even though he was an outspoken enemy of everything that God stood for. Even though he was an outspoken enemy of everything that God, in his word, taught. Now, it is undoubted that the people of Jerusalem knew that Tobiah should not even be allowed onto the temple premises, much less live in the temple. They were there building the wall when Tobiah and Sanballat came and yelled at them and threatened them and told them that they could never build the wall and threatened to burn the wall down and taunted them and mocked them and wrote letters to the kings of Persia threatening and saying, these people are going to rise up against you if you let them build. Tobiah was one of those and they knew it. So why was he living in the temple? Because he had the high priest's permission to be there. No one was going to question the high priest. But God tells the people here in verse 12, as God contends with them, condemns them for their sin from the greatest to the least, he makes it abundantly clear that there is not a man in Israel, not even a master, not even a scholar in Israel who was exempt from God's judgment if they profane his holiness. There is no man that will stand before God one day and be able to flash a badge. There's no man that will be able to show his his record as a pastor or as a priest and get away with things that are contrary to the word of God. God's word is God's word. It's written in the heavens. It is eternal. And every man will answer to God for how he related in this life to the word of God. And God says, no master and no scholar in Israel is exempt. I will cut off the man that doeth this, be it a master, be it a scholar. Doesn't matter. From the greatest to the least. Now the application to the church today is actually a very small leap. Perhaps many of you were applying this in your own mind through the Holy Spirit as I was preaching it. God is still the same God. He is still a holy God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character has never changed. His expectations have never changed. Now, we are not Israel. The church is not Israel. We do not relate to God under the Mosaic Covenant. We do not relate to the cursings and the blessings in the same way that Israel did. However, we are called God's holy people. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2.9 Peter, speaking to the church here, calls us a holy people, calls us a chosen generation, calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. When 
you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were ushered into the body that is the church. When you became a member of the church, you became a member of a holy nation, of a royal priesthood, of a peculiar people, a people set apart unto God. God demands that his people be set apart unto his purposes and therefore abhors the thought of his people intermingling with those that serve other gods. Paul taught this truth with extreme clarity in 2 Corinthians 6, 14-17. You can listen as I read. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Belial being a worthless man here, it is a... Um, Name, really, that he's giving to Satan or to darkness. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? An infidel being one who is unfaithful. The Muslims have twisted that word. The word simply means one who is unfaithful. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Do you see the application this morning? As believers, we have no part pairing ourselves with unbelievers. Now, the specific application in the book of Malachi, as well as uh, the one here in Second Corinthians, is to that of marriage. The reality that as, an, as a believer, you should not even consider entering a marriage bond with an unbeliever. And in fact, according to Paul's teaching, even one who is not equally yoked with you, it's not even just unbeliever, it might be maturity levels as well. God has a purpose for us. And that purpose is to show forth his praises. 1 Peter 2.9 made that clear. Can any strong union, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a strong business partnership or a deep friendship with an unbeliever, fulfill God's purpose when a person is involved who is dead in their trespasses and sins? Can that relationship do what it is supposed to do? Deep friendships, deep business relationships, marriage, can it fulfill God's purpose when one who is outside of the body of Christ is an integral part of it? Now, what do I not mean? What don't I mean? What is pastor not saying? I am not saying that you should have no unbelieving friends. I am not saying that you should not do business with unbelievers. Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 5.10 that if that were the case, then we'd have to completely come out of the world. And then we lose our entire purpose of being here. Because we're supposed to be in the world. I am not saying that you are to separate yourself from all associations that are unbelieving. We can't do that. If our church gets there, we're not fulfilling our purpose. What am I saying? What do I mean? What is the scriptures teaching? Scriptures is teaching this. To have a deep and intimate relationship with an unbeliever. Regardless of the particular nature of the relationship. To have a deep and intimate relationship with an unbeliever inherently places the believer in a position where his responsibility to live his faith is in competition with other loyalties. My loyalty to my spouse, 
my loyalty to that business partner, my loyalty to that deep friendship might end up competing with my loyalty to God because I have no longer separated myself from it, from those competitions. And so now my blade is dull. Now I have been watered down because I have competing loyalties in my life. My loyalty to my wife or my loyalty to my God. My loyalty to my husband or my loyalty to my God. You say, well, I can change them. I can change them. I can make things better. I can change my business partner. I can change my spouse. It doesn't work that way. It can work that way, but it doesn't always work that way. The change should not be after some sort of commitment. It should be seen in fruit before any commitment is made. That is what God is saying here. By the way, uh, evangelistic dating, evangelistic courting, those ideas don't even go there. It leads to nothing but trouble for the believer. I had a pastor that said it this way once, when the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. So true. Throw a clean rag into a pile of dirty rags. You're not going to wake up one day and find a bunch of dirty rags. You're going to find that dirty rag got, that clean rag got dirty. That's how it is, folks. That's why God has called us to be a separated people. Because when the clean is with the dirty, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. Why didn't God? We've, I've asked this question a bunch over the past many weeks. Why didn't God rapture us the moment we got saved? Why does God leave us on this earth after salvation? We're saved. We've been saved. We are now in heaven blameless, faultless. God has called us by his grace. We are looking forward to the day where we will be saved for all of eternity we will be separated from this body of sin and have a resurrected body that is raised in perfection. We will stand around the throne for all of eternity rejoicing in God. We will sing that song of the Lamb. We will sing holy, holy, holy. We will listen to the cherubims and seraphims do the same. If that's the case, if we're all going to be in heaven after we're saved anyway, why would God leave us on this earth? Well, because we're not simply called to be saved. As a matter of fact, when we get saved, our work for God is not finished. It has only just begun. We are left upon this earth to manifest God's glory and to lead others into that same salvation. And that means we need to be a people set apart unto God. And regardless of our authority, regardless of our fame, regardless of our wealth, regardless of our position, from your, the pastor all the way down to the youngest child in this room, we will all stand accountable to God one day for how we've done exactly that. And so we are a holy people. As I've mentioned before, this doesn't mean we always need to be different from the world. It does mean we always need to be distinct from the world. Do you understand? We don't always have to look different. We may not even always act different. Although many times we will look different and act different. But we will always maintain a distinction. That is the distinction of the believer. First point. 
as we saw it this morning. Your holy God demands a separated people. Second point this morning, verses 14 to 16. Your holy God hates divorce among his people. We cannot hit this passage without seeing this. Your holy God hates divorce among his people. Look with me at verse 14. Yet ye say, God speaking to Judah, wherefore? In what way have we profaned your holiness? He says, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed, therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. That word is the word for divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and ye, that ye deal not treacherously. As the controversy continues in verse 14, the people again display their heart of spiritual blindness by asking wherefore. Why would God not regard their sacrifices? How are they profaning God's holiness? Here we find a second evil has been heaped upon these unequal marriages. We understand that the people have been marrying outside of the covenant, been marrying people who are loyal to false gods. But in order for these marriages to pagan women to take place, notice what they had done. The men first divorced the women of Israel. They divorced their wives in order that they might pursue these other women. They had married women in Israel, the wife of their youth. And when the accountability was gone, they divorced their wife so that they could run after these ladies that followed false gods. That's the situation that we see here, that God is abhorred with. God condemns these men not only for profaning God's holiness through unequal marriages, but by first abandoning the wife of their covenant. God's meaning here is twofold, meaning the wife of the covenant. First, she was the wife of his covenant that, um, in that she was a Jehovah follower. She was a Jehovah worshiper. So she was the wife of God's covenant with Israel. They were both a part of the covenant. And now they have entered into a covenant with each other as two children of the covenant of God. Second, she was his first wife and was therefore covenanted with her husband for eternity in the eyes of God. And so the picture is this. Two Israelites, both of which have been following the covenant of God, then come together and make a covenant with one another. They are now covenanted to one another and they are a reflection of God's covenant in each of their lives. God goes on to explain that when a child of the covenant gets married... In verse 15, the two people together are counted to be in a covenant marriage set apart by God in order to raise up seed unto the covenant. This marriage is sanctified, set apart by God to pass on their faith to the next generation. Because she's in the covenant and he's in the covenant, when they get married, they will then pass that covenant on to their next generations. By divorcing the wife of his youth, The man has not only profaned God's holiness, but he has also neglected God's purpose of raising up a godly seed. He has also compromised the ability of his children to follow Jehovah God because they're going to have a mother that's not loyal to Jehovah God. So there's been great compromise here of God's holiness. 
In this act of divorce, they have forsaken God's covenant. They have forsaken the children of the covenant. They have forsaken God's purpose to raise up godly seed. They have corrupted God's purpose for them. And they have profaned God's holiness. Now that is not a pleasant list. All of that happens as God describes what they have done through their actions. Now can we begin to see then why divorce is so evil in the eyes of God, particularly divorce among his people? I'm going to be careful as I apply this this morning. This is not going to be a full message on divorce for sake of time this morning. But let me, let me describe it this way. Divorce is always sin in the eyes of God. Divorce is always sin in the eyes of God. That does not mean that there are not situations where divorce might be necessary. Divorce is very much a case-by-case basis. Divorce is sometimes necessary, but the fact that it becomes necessary at times does not change the fact that it's sin. Okay? Does not change the fact that God hates it just because sometimes it must happen. However, as we take it one step further and we talk about marriage between God's people, there is an extra layer, an extra emphasis upon marriage between two believers that extends well beyond the way God sees the marriage of unbelievers. You say, Pastor, really? I believe so. If you are confused on this topic of divorce, I've done a pretty concise write-up that I would be happy to give you. But turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. I, I would like you to see this. God views a marriage between two, excuse me, between a believer and another, whether it's two believers or one, as different than a marriage between unbelievers. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 10. We'll read through verse 16. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And if the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they clean. Excuse me, now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knoweth thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or what knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? The, this passage is often misunderstood and even more so confused, often even taken to the degree where people claim that if a person is a believer, then his or her spouse is saved by default. Isn't that what it says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband? That's not what it's saying. We've talked about the word holy. The word holy means set apart. In the Greek, the word sanctify means set apart. It means to be holy, to be set apart. It's, it, the, the words are synonymous. To be set apart. 
In light of what we now know from Malachi, we can make better sense of these verses, can we not? God viewed the marriage of two Israelites as a particular representation of his covenant. He wanted the covenant to be between a man and a woman who were both children of the covenant, and they were supposed to come together, and in their marriage union, they were a particular representation of God's covenant, and they were also then have the opportunity to raise unto that next generation, they were, had the opportunity to raise up godly seed. Seed that were not divided in their loyalties, but were 100% loyal to Jehovah God. Thus, God did not want intermarrying with the, the land. God did not want intermarrying with those who were not Jehovah followers. In a manner of speaking, the covenant between husband and wife was a mini-representation of the covenant between God and Israel. To transgress the marriage covenant was to transgress this representation and thus to profane the holiness of God. In much the same way, it seems, God sees the marriage of a believer as something uniquely sanctified, set apart, holy, above the marriage of two unbelievers. In a very real way, for, an unbelie- for a believer to transgress his or her marriage vow, marriage covenant is to transgress this representation, and it is to profane the holiness of God. And at least in the age of grace, as we see it here in 1 Corinthians, there's only a requirement of one believer. See, because Paul is saying, if there's a man in the relationship who's a believer, the wife is sanctified. She is set apart as well. Somehow that, that marriage is elevated in the eyes of God as a representation of him, of Christ in the church, as we remember from Ephesians. When a wife is married to an unbelieving husband, her belief is somehow then set apart in the eyes of God and that marriage is sanctified. And the children from that union are also holy, set apart, sanctified. They're representatives as well. Does that mean that they're saved? No. It doesn't. There's nowhere in that passage that talks about being saved. It talks about being set apart. And as we look at Malachi and understand what Malachi, the the controversy, we can see exactly where God's mindset is here through the example of Israel. We can see here that, that Israel was a people set apart unto God. That this was a marriage of the covenant in a very real way when a believer marries someone else, that marriage relationship becomes a representation of God and his church in a very real way. In a way that the unbelieving marriage does not. And so verse 16 states that God hates the putting away and carefully warns the men of Israel to deal not treacherously. It's the same word we saw before, to deal not unfaithfully. We have been given quite a bit to think about today. We see a nation of men and women who are called to be unique representatives of God to the world. Yet in their actions they were found to profane the holiness of the very God they were called to glorify. And so God uses the words of Malachi to remind them that God demands a separated people and that God hates divorce among his people. You say, well, pastor, what if the damage is already done? If the damage is already done as far as divorce is concerned and you're confused, please come see me. We do see precedent in scripture that God does not approve of sinning in order to undo a different sin. Of doing something wrong in order to try and undo a past wrong. 
These things are very circumstantial. If you have any questions, please come see me and we can talk about it more in a, in a more personal setting. Now, we've applied throughout this message, but let's apply again at the end. Let's ask some questions as we close. Let's bring it home to our hearts. Are you separated unto God? Are you a people, a person, set apart unto God? Young people, as you pursue relationships in your future, as you look for a spouse, as you, uh, anyone in this room, as you pursue business relationships, as you pursue close friendships, it is essential that you determine that you will never, ever get into deep relationships unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because when the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? If we are like the world, then we cannot reach the world. Families, are you separated unto God? Do you have relationships in your life that are hindering your ability to fulfill God's purpose through you, through your family? I feel confident that most under the sound of my voice would understand and agree that divorce is wrong in the eyes of God. But it is my prayer that each one of us would be able to as well express why we believe it from the scriptures. And thus be able to help those who are confused on the issues. Let's allow what we've learned today from Malachi and as we've carried it across into 1 Corinthians 7 to inform our understanding of God's view of divorce on why it's so important that, that there be no unequally yoking, on why it's so important that God would have his people to marry and to stay married once they are married. It's a big deal because our willingness to conform our relationships, be it marriage, business, friendships, to the character of God is a direct expression of God's holiness through our lives. Likewise, to disdain God's character is to profane his holiness. And as we have seen throughout this study, if God cannot be glorified through us, rest assured he will be glorified in us. And so how are we doing today? Are we separated unto God? Just as God called sodomy and adultery and idolatry abominations, so too, as God's people intermingle with those who are not followers of God on a close level, marriages, businesses, God says, you are profaning my holiness. And it is an abomination in his eyes. Let's pray.